Almighty God, we thank you for the power of your word, for the gift of your word. And we ask now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have spoken to us in your word. We ask, Lord, with the disciples all those years ago, that you would teach us to pray. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. I think if you were to talk to most folks in America, they would have some familiarity with the Lord's Prayer. Looking out at everyone here, I'm sure that everyone here is familiar with the Lord's Prayer, even the young children. But as with all things that are familiar, sometimes we can grow weary of them. We can overlook what is important and what is essential in them if we aren't careful. In other words, we can take them for granted. And this can easily happen with the Lord's Prayer. With this series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer, I want us to truly examine our prayer lives and to truly understand what prayer is and how great a privilege God has given us that we might actually speak with the living God. I want us to enjoy prayer. Too many of us don't enjoy prayer. We do what we enjoy, and if we're not praying, it's a likelihood that we're not enjoying it as we should. We need to develop an appreciation for prayer, and we need to develop an appreciation for the godly discipline that it actually brings to our lives and to understand that it truly is a great honor to speak with the living God. Because if we are not people of prayer, then frankly our lives will unravel. They will come apart like a cheap, like the glue on the doors of a cheaply constructed dollhouse. It will just fall apart. It's just a matter of time. Prayer is a great comfort. It's a great source of strength a great source of wisdom. And by speaking with the living God, we grow in our Christ-likeness. Now, the Lord's Prayer that we find in Matthew 6, it's broken down into three parts. You have a preface, you have six petitions, and then a conclusion. This is an excellent way for us to frame our prayers. There's two ways that we can use the Lord's Prayer. We are allowed to use it as a prayer in and of itself, as we do every week in the liturgy. We recite, for lack of a better term, the prayer. It should be much more than a recitation. Not just saying the words, but actually meaning them. But the Lord's Prayer also shows us a framework, a pattern, to model our own prayer lives after. If all you do is say the Lord's Prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and night, it's better than nothing, but it's not going to be all that effective. It's going to be, your prayer life is going to be rather arid, And eventually your life will come unglued like that poorly constructed doghouse. Dollhouse. I suppose a doghouse could be poorly constructed. But the Lord's Prayer gives us this pattern. It gives us this pattern which Christ gives to us. And today I'm going to focus on the preface. Our Father who art in heaven. How many times have you said those words? Our Father who art in heaven. Our prayers can grow cold and stale, perfunctory, just a mere routine, mechanical. It shouldn't be that way, but they do, don't they? We have to deal with reality. Our prayer lives and our prayers themselves can just be words. Maybe we've said these words 
so many times that they've lost their power for us. Maybe we've said these words so many times that we kind of forgotten what they actually mean. Maybe we've said these words of the Lord's Prayer so many times that we've just simply taken them for granted. And I hope to correct that today by simply looking for a a bit at this preface. I don't want us to grow careless in our prayer life. Our Father who art in heaven is a tremendous, tremendous thing. Christ invites us into the family of God. He invites us into the family of God. And he grants us the privilege of addressing the Heavenly Father as our Heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven. And this great privilege of addressing God as our Heavenly Father demands that we acknowledge his glory. We must acknowledge God's glory because he is our heavenly father. He is great beyond words. The words that we use to describe him, no matter how majestic and eloquent they are, they don't do justice to who he is. Think about who he is, your heavenly father. By the word of his power, he created the entire universe. The stars that you see on a clear night, he placed them exactly where he wants them. Those rings around Saturn, which are amazing to look at and study, he put them there. Glaciers of the northern seas, they're there at his command. If you've ever seen the Mississippi, the powerful river, that thing surges at his command. And you are in his hand. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that nobody can snatch us out of the Father's hand. So the God who has created this universe and orders things exactly as they should be, who withholds the rain, who gives us the rain, who withholds the snow and then provides us with sleet, our lives are in his hand. That's how powerful he is. And Christ is telling us that we are allowed to call him our Father. Our Heavenly Father. This is who he is. He's the great builder. Look at this building for a moment, this sanctuary. Some of you may not know this. A lot of this is handcrafted stuff. Not the microphone, this pulpit is. This is craftsmanship. And when you see someone who is doing their work well and is good at it, no matter what it is, because we each have a vocation to glorify God in, we're imaging God properly when we do that. When we use our vocation to glorify him, when we use our life as a craft, we are imaging God who is the crafter of the entire universe. And Christ here invites us, indeed he commands us, to call God our Father. Think about his glory and his power. Do you think about God's power that often? How often do we walk by an amazing physical sight? Clouds swooshing by at night, past the moon, and we just say, that looks nice. 
or we don't even take notice of it, much less actually realizing God is moving that. How he's doing that, I don't know. He's created these laws that just seem to work. We know that the sun's going to come up. We can tell what time it is in Geneva and Tokyo by a world clock. It works perfectly. And Christ is telling us to call him our Father. That's intimate language. He's not a far-off deity. He's right there for us. He's transcendent above his creation. He is not part of his creation. But he reveals himself in his creation. And he is there for us. And he wants us to communicate with him. Because prayer, at the end of the day, is reverential communication with the living God. And Christ tells us that we are allowed to call him Father. And Father is a very intimate term. Only children call their father Father. On occasion, you might have a very young child call you father and you're not their father and it's cute, you laugh because they don't have it quite right and they just see a a man and they just say, oh, dad. And we know instinctively, "Eh, it's not quite right. He's over there. He's at work. He's not here. You're allowed to call God your father. Do you understand how wonderful that is? How kind that is of God to do that? Think about who he is. Think about that song that the ladies gave us. Or the writings of Job, for that matter, or Paul's testimony in Corinth. All the troubles that we go through, he notices them. Our laughter, he hears. Our sorrows, he understands. Every crevice of our personality, He grasps every corner of our mind. He's there. He knows your hopes, your fears, your desires, your regrets, your pain, your anguish. He knows your hate. He knows your love. Why? Because he knows everything. And he is everywhere at all times. And he can and will do what you and I are utterly incapable of doing. He will save you from the stain and guilt of your sin. We can't do that. And let me be honest with you, if we even had the power to do that, if left to our own devices, if left to our own sinful nature, we would not do it. If it weren't for God's grace, we would love being God's enemies. If it weren't for his grace, we would enjoy rebelling against him. If it weren't for his grace, we would be outlaws in the kingdom of God. But he has saved his people by his grace. And by a simple act of faith in Christ, he can and will save you. And let me just ask you bluntly, have you asked him to do this great thing for you? Have you asked God to remove the stain of your sin? I hope so. 
If you haven't, then please do so immediately. Because you cannot save yourself. Only your Heavenly Father has the right to do that because it's His house and He makes the rules. Every father at every address has the God-given right to establish certain rules at that particular address. Father cannot go across the street to a different address and say, you must do it this way. So if you live at 1313 Mockingbird Lane, you can't go to 1314 Mockingbird Lane and tell the other chap how to do it. But if you're at 1313 Mockingbird Lane, you have every right to say, "Uh uh-uh, it's bedtime. One father might, if he wants, allow his children to awake on a Saturday, eat Lucky Charms and Frosted Flakes, and watch cartoons all day. He has that right. Another father has the right next door to say, no, you will have bacon and eggs, and you will do Saturday morning chores. I'll leave it up to your wisdom as to which father might be doing things according to God's plan. But if we're living in God's world and he created the world, then guess what? It's his house and he makes the rules. And the rules are we cannot save ourselves. I can't. You can't. And I can't save you. And you can't save your children. You can't. Only God can. We have to pray for them. Do we really pray? Everybody can improve. And I'm not necessarily just talking about the length of our prayers, because remember, in Matthew 6, right before the Lord's Prayer, Christ warns us against long, repetitious prayers. We don't need to speak a lot to God, because He already knows everything. We don't have to inform Him of everything. Have you ever heard a prayer? Sometimes you hear them from pulpits, sadly. I heard this once. It's etched in my mind. 1985. Oh, Lord, you might have noticed in the paper today that there was a bus crash. This is in New Jersey. And I thought, I was a young Christian at the time. I thought, I'm pretty sure God knew that. And he doesn't need to read the Asbury Park Press, a local paper in New Jersey. He doesn't have to read that to know that the bus crashed waste of oxygen at that point. We don't need fancy language when we pray to God. We don't need long prayers. We're actually commanded not to pray long prayers, but the prayers have got to be in earnest. They have to have some oomph to them. This isn't to assert that every time we pray to God, it's going to be like the 4th of July, that fireworks are going to go off and everything's going to taste sweet. Prayer is deep spiritual warfare. It is hard to do. Any spiritual exercise is very difficult to do. Every now and again, more often than I like, after worship, I'll say something that I regret. Largely because I'm exhausted. And someone asks me something, and I just just give an answer. I don't mean to say crazy things. They're not really that crazy. But every now and again I'll slip because I am physically exhausted after preaching for 25 or 30 minutes. Not that it's hard. Some of you lay block and do roofs and things for a living. You say, it doesn't look all that hard. It's hard in a different kind of way. And prayer is hard. 
It's not hard to sit in a chair for 15 minutes, is it? Any of us can do it. We're going to do it this afternoon. But it's very difficult to sit in that same prayer and focus your heart and your mind on the living God and converse with him. That is hard. Your mind will wander. You will start thinking about Star Trek. You'll start thinking about baseball. You'll think about football. You'll think about crocheting. Anything. Your mind will wander. And it takes effort by the Spirit of God to accomplish something in that chair if you want to pray. And the preface of the Lord's Prayer teaches us that God is God and we are not. If God is in heaven and we are on earth offering that prayer to him, then right at the beginning we are acknowledging that he is different than we are. God is God. Now, you might be saying, well, pastor, thank you for that lesson. I know that. Do you? Did you act? Did you try and act like God at all this week? Did you try and become the Lord over your life or someone else's life? Probably. If you think you have, ask God to reveal it to you, and I promise you, he will convict you of your sin. If you ask God to convict you of your sin, to point out the deadliness in your life, I promise you, he will, he will make it clear very, very quickly. He won't say wait on that one. If you really want to know. Sometimes looking in the mirror is an ugly experience. When we look into our hearts and we realize how unlike God we really are. Even if we've been Christians for decades, we all still have so very far to go. Because he is God. He's perfect. There's never been a moment when he didn't exist. And moments don't even count for him because he exists outside of time. We can't even wrap our mind around that one. We have to have time and space to even function. This is who we talk to when we pray. He's not some abstract deity. He's not some silly statue. He's not some dumb wood carving. He's the eternal God. Now, why wouldn't we talk to him if he asks us to? Who wouldn't take up that offer? Every one of us. We all take a pass on it. Many, many times. Many times during each day, we take a pass on the offer of conversing with the living God. This preface teaches us that we must approach God in a reverential and holy manner. This is not a casual conversation. Our Father, who art in heaven. All of our prayers should start with an ascription of his glory and his power and his majesty. Again, you don't have to use flowery language, but you have to acknowledge that you're dealing with an eternal being and that in and of yourself you have no right to even be there doing it. It's his invitation. Pray in this way. Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven. It's an invitation. He's telling us how to do it. Prayer 101. Acknowledge that he's God. That's the best place to start. And by acknowledging that he is God, we are acknowledging that we are not. And we we acknowledge that he is holy. We acknowledge that we are sinners. 
You see, when we come to God, we also have to come with a sense of our sin. Yes, we are adopted children in the king's house. But we are adopted children who break the rules. And as I said, every father gets to make his rules. My father had a lot of rules. One that he had was, you may not ever wear your football cleats inside this house. You can't do it. Especially when they're muddy. I broke that rule once. It was right after the first game in fourth grade. They were nice cleats. I thought they looked very, very nice. And, well, they had dirt in them. And I didn't only walk on my mother's carpet, I ran on it. I'll leave it to your imagination if the rest of that day was a pleasant experience for me. It wasn't. My father said, okay, you're a football player. Good. Let's go outside. You like your cleats. You like to run. Let's run. This is Jacksonville, Florida. It's hot in September. Run up and down that yard. Just keep going. I'll tell you when to stop. Didn't have to spank me. Just keep running, champ. Okay, go grab a glass of water. Let's do some more. Run back and forth. I never wore cleats in that house again. God's house. So when we come to him, we acknowledge that he is holy and we acknowledge that we are sinners. And we confess our sins and we receive forgiveness and grace as his adopted children. Those are essential aspects of prayer. Do you realize that when you confess your sin to the Father and you really agree with what he's saying, that he forgives you every single time, that his patience knows no length, that his power is unlimited, that the pardon is always there for you. I'm not advocating that you do anything crazy. But if you were to commit the most heinous sin that you could think of, and after that sin was committed, you were truly repentant of it, and you truly agreed with God that it was a sin worthy of condemnation, and you acknowledged that to him, your pardon would be effected. You would still suffer earthly consequences, but the eternal consequences would be wiped away. That's what we mean when we sing amazing grace. It's amazing because we don't see much of it in the world. We don't act like God. We hold grudges. He does not. We punish. He disciplines. We hate. He loves. He provides. We withhold. We're very unlike him. But this is the beauty of it. As a Christian, do you know what God is doing for you at this very moment? And what he'll continue to do in the next hour, in the next day, in the next week. He's refashioning you into the image of his son. He wants you to reflect the glory of his son. He wants you to live a holy life, not in order to be accepted by him, but in order to show appreciation for him and to represent him wherever he has placed you. Just as he has placed those rings around Saturn, he has placed each and every one of you exactly where he wants you at this moment. Maybe you hate your job. I don't know. And all of us have been at some place in our lives where we just said, boy, I'd like to be almost anywhere than here. If you haven't, then really you need to thank God. 
But if he's placed you in position X, Y, and Z, then that's exactly where he wants you. And you have the privilege and the honor and the duty of representing him as an ambassador in your vocation. No matter what you do, no matter what you're called to do, that is where God wants you. For reason only known to himself. Do you love God? When we come to him, we have to come to him with a heart of love. And if we're honest with ourselves, our love grows cold. Most of us like to receive things from him. We all do. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. I'll get to that in a moment. But we need to come to him with an attitude of love. And that love is shown through thankfulness for what he's done. I'd like to challenge you today to go home for five minutes. Five. Not that long. And do nothing but thank God for things. Eyeglasses. Nice tie. Shirt. Anything. Do you realize that everything you own is a gift from God? It's on loan. You don't really own it. You can take it away any time you want. Job learned that lesson. You'd be amazed at how many things and persons, start with the persons in your life first, that you can thank him for. You can run up a gigantic tally in only five minutes. Start with those you love first. The ones that you live with, the ones who get on your nerves on a daily basis. Dude, living, living in the same address is, is rough stuff sometimes. That's why God allowed men to create doors. Radios. But if those persons were taken out of your life, how would you feel? It would be a disaster. So thank God for them. It's Independence Day week. Thank God for the freedoms that you have. We can pray here. We can scream praises at the top of our lungs and no one's going to come through that door and take us to jail. People have died for that right. And some of you have fought for that right. And we need to be thankful for that. Do you appreciate it when you do something for someone and they never say thank you? Ingratitude is an awful, awful character trait. I think we would all do well to show our thankfulness to God. And as we, as we begin to thank Him, our love will burn hotter when we realize, oh, He really has done all of this for me. Think of the cars that we drive, the, the food that we eat. Thank Him for it. And we need to come to him in faith. The book of Hebrews tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God. I never met the man, but John Knox must have had amazing faith. That great Scottish Presbyterian of the 16th century. 16th century Scotland was a unruly place to say the least 
and Queen Mary of Scots, who just happened to be a Roman Catholic and who didn't particularly care for John Knox, when she heard him praying, it's reputed, and it's been told for almost 500 years, so it's probably a true story, that she said, I fear the prayers of that man more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Must have had faith. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that he wants the best for you? Better yet, do you believe that he knows what's best for you? Like the song said, it's possible that the trials of this life or your mercy is in disguise. I certainly hope I got those lyrics right. But I got the spirit of it. The rough things in this life, his hand is still there. And he wants us to come to him and ask him our desires. He knows what you need. He knows what you want. He knows what you need better than you know what you need. That's why we don't need long, repetitious prayers. Simple prayers offered in faith with fervent love are effective. What does James, the Lord's half-brother, tell us? The fervent prayer of a righteous man is effectual. God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. And his son here in this preface is telling us to address the God of all creation as our Heavenly Father. And the privilege of addressing God as our Heavenly Father means that it demands that we acknowledge his glory. He's done so much for us. We can certainly do no less. We can do no less. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of prayer. And we ask that you would help us to pray. In Christ's name, amen.